Good morning. Been following along with Abraham. So today we'll continue. Um, I apologize for the picture. I was trying to learn how to use AI-generated pictures because that's the new thing, is just to make cool AI-generated pictures. And so I was going to make a picture, but I could not figure out what AI generators were actually good enough to use. The free ones that I was using online weren't really doing the trick. And I don't know about you guys, but like when I read Bible stories, I'm still a kid and I still like picture the movie through my head. And for whatever reason, whenever I picture Abraham, I picture like Kenny Rogers. And so what I wanted from the AI generator was like, I actually typed in like Kenny Rogers' head on Rambo with blazing guns. And it did not, it did not produce what I needed it to produce. And uh, then I just get stuck on it get hyper-focused on it. My fellow teachers and my wife like to remind me that I'm undiagnosed ADD because of my that stuff. But that's just how it is. And then sometimes like I'm thinking about like Abraham, why do I think Abraham looks like Kenny Rogers? And I start thinking about like Islands in the Stream, which is, which is a great song. And if Musharraf is watching in Bangladesh, which he does, and you've not ever listened to Islands in the Stream, Musharraf, you shouldn't listen to Islands in the Stream. Then I started thinking like, oh, so I could think of like Sarah as Dolly Parton. And so I started doing that. And then I realized I had to get back to my sermon and figure this out. It's just kind of how it works. So so Abraham's going to be something today, but he's a good something today. Uh, Just go real quick through Abraham's story. Uh, He's called out of Ur. He left that city life behind. He moves to Haran. His father dies. He finally moves to Canaan. Takes Lot, his nephew, with him. Uh, He builds Yahweh an altar, and he just kind of starts life there. Um, Then eventually famine forces his journey to Egypt. He goes down to Egypt. He's a scoundrel. Maybe that's part of why I think he's like Kenny Rogers, because I think Kenny Rogers is like the gambler. He's kind of got that scoundrel thing, but yes, he's still like this respected, good-looking older guy. And so, but he goes down to Egypt, and he's kind of a scoundrel with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh then sends him on his way with a bunch of goods, and uh, God puts plagues on Egypt because Pharaoh's got Abram's wife, even though Abram, Abram was lying about it. And so finally, Abraham, I think, learns his lesson. He goes back to the altar that he makes, and he settles back at the Oaks of Mambre again. And he makes right with Yahweh. And then we left last week, Lot and Abraham separated nicely because they had both grown so rich and their, everything was so full that they, they couldn't all stay on the same land. And so we're going to pick up today. They've, they've just split. Lot went down to live next to Sodom and Abraham's up north. And so here's just a little picture again of a section of the Middle East and Israel. Ur in the corner is where Abraham started. He went up to Haran, which is that top dot. And then he's down there inside that square area that is Israel. And that's currently where we're at. It shows his Egypt journey there. There's too many lines on that map. But Genesis 14. So it's going to be another chapter full of strange names and nations to get through. Um, but it gives you a little piece of what it was like for Abraham where he was living. In the days of Amram... Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Keldalamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, 
Shineb, king of Adma, Shemibar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, who really they didn't give a name to, and I don't know why, so I don't know, but the king of Bela never gets a name. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. The Salt Sea is another name for the Dead Sea. So down at the bottom there. Twelve years, those five kings that were talked about at the bottom served Ketalamar, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So there's where those five kings are settled at the bottom of the Dead Sea, that little green square. The little yellow guy up there, further up in Israel, that's where Abram's at. And then they put a little blue guy to symbolize where Lot had settled. So that's the geography of where we're starting. So you've got these five kings right now that are rebelling against a king from the east. Now in the east is Mesopotamia. We'll go back one. So you can see Babylon there. If you remember right, we've talked about Shinar is the same as Babylon for the Jewish writers of the the book. Um, So you have all these Mesopotamian kings who are strong and powerful, who had just been collecting tribute from these lower city-state kings that are scattered around the area. And so what happened was finally those five kings got together and they're like, you know what, there's five of us, let's band together, we're just done paying. We're done giving the king what he wants. The king's way over in the east, and uh, what's he going to do about it? Well, that king got together with other kings who were ready to put the rebellions down. And so you have the king of Babylon, and you have the king of other large countries that are coming, and they're just kind of on a war cruise at this point. Um, this is just the sides. Not that it, it particularly matters, but just to show you, you've got, you got nine armies that are now going to meet. Uh, pay attention to the king of Sodom. He's going to play into this story, and then we get into Sodom and Gomorrah here in a couple weeks. A very famous story. Um, but those are, the, those are the sides drawn. And Abraham is not part of this. Abraham is just chilling in the Oaks of Mambre, living the good life, getting rich, and uh, enjoying life with his wife and Yahweh. And uh, in the 14th year, Ketalamar, that's the guy, that, the king that they rebelled against, Ketalamar, and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtoreth Karnaim, that's in the north, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim in Shava Kirathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. So these are all north of the, the Dead Sea, these places. These are tribes that will come back up in history as Joshua invades. They're also tribes that are all considered part of the Rephaim. And the Rephaim is that word that they use for some of the Nephilim stuff after the flood. So here we're going back to this idea of these giants and these evil people. Uh, and those are the tribes. So this king comes up from Mesopotamia, and he starts putting down these giant hill tribes, because it's kind of hilly up there. Um, why they did that, the Bible doesn't say. We don't know. They came up. I have an idea that there's conflicts between the gods of the nations, and these ones in the north had figured out how to do all the strange gianty type things. And I think the kings of Babylon were happy knowing the secrets and didn't really want people doing it. That's speculation. But the Bible doesn't really say. They just go on this war tour. They're going, they're going north, and they're going to come down and deal with the rebels they originally left for. And so when they turned back, they came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar, 
Again, names and places don't really matter too much right now. But these guys are going around and they're wasting everybody. And that's important because that's leading into the miracle that Yahweh does here later on. Then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Keldamar, king of Elam, title, and we'll go through all the names again, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled from the battle, some fell into these pits, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So the kings were just coming to teach a lesson. They weren't necessarily there to set up shop. They're just saying, keep the payments coming. This is how it works. Now, we know that this is not the way that things were intended. This was part of the issue with Babel, is you have the strong man taking from all the lower, lower men. We know that this is not the way it was supposed to be. When they went to Sodom and Gomorrah, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, in his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshel and Aner. These were called, or these were the allies of Abram. Okay, so what's that saying? Is Abram still chilling out by the oaks of Mamre? Um, but he's hanging out with Amorites, which is strange because the Amorites get such a, a bad rep in the Bible. But he's just living in the Amorite territory. There were Amorites on both sides of the Dead Sea. The ones on the east side of the Dead Sea just got smacked by those kings. But Abram is kind of hanging out with these guys over there. And those guys are three brothers. And I'm guessing that Abram is blessed. He's showing the blessings of Yahweh, and these Amorites want in on it. So they're living in peace with Abram. Good life for them, too. Uh, dug into the Oaks of Mamre to just kind of figure this out because they keep bringing up the Oaks of Mamre. And um, some scholars have gone ban- back and forth in deciding whether they were oak trees or these things called terebinths, which I didn't know anything about terebinths. Some translations put in terebinths. A terebinth is just a tree, like a bush. It's not really a big oak, which is strange because they're not even similar. A terebinth is what people make turpentine out of, which I didn't know that. That's where you get turpentine. Um, so I dug into this because I do get hyper-focused on things, and basically oldest manuscripts have oaks for the most part. It gets into nitty-gritty Hebrew stuff, Hebrew words originally, and they're the older languages, uh, versions of it, you don't have vowels, so there's some guesswork with it, and some people have gone back and forth. But most people believe there's oaks. They're just big oak trees. They look like that. So that's a... I don't know the exact species, but that's your common Middle Eastern oak. It's a lot different than our oak. Um, but you can see where it's, it looks like a strong tree with a lot of shade. And shade is something that was at, you know, at a small amount in the Middle East. And uh, so just think about a bunch of those trees, probably a grove of trees. It sounds like the oaks of Mamre were kind of like on a mountain. So here we get into this whole garden trees on a mountain idea, and that's where Abraham has set up shop. That's where he's built his tent for Yahweh. So you have this Eden idea with where, a- where Abraham is hanging out. Then you have the tent, which is kind of all of us who have read the Bible. We think of the tabernacle with the tent. There's all these images that are being put in our mind right now with what Abram's doing and living. Um, so yeah, so Abram heard that his kinsmen 
His kinsmen had been taken captive, and he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. This is the miracle of the story. And I don't know why we don't ever do this as a Sunday school story, because it reminds me of the, the Joshua invasion stuff. Abram is going to pursue these four Mesopotamian armies with 318 men. Sounds like maybe he's got some of his Amorite friends with him, but he's going to get Lot back. This would make a great action flick. Like Abraham's like, all these people are warring around me. And Abraham's, yes, but life is good. And I'm here living a peaceful life with my family. And then someone such shows up and he's like, but they got your nephew. And he looks, he gets the 318 men prepped and he's ready to go. And what are you going to do, Abram, with 318 men? You have four Mesopotamian armies, that type of thing. It'd be a good show. He would make a good miniseries. Abraham would make a good miniseries. We could probably do a Netflix series on Abraham. I think it'd be good. Anyway, so he's going to go out. And he divided his forces against them by night. So it's a night invasion, so that's cool. He and his servants, they defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So there is your first Yahweh war miracle actually recorded in the Old Testament. And Abram goes out with 318 men, does reroutes the enemies. I don't know if it's like elite forces, like invasion type thing, where he's just going in and we don't know. It doesn't say. We don't know what Yahweh did in all of this. Um, but it worked. And he brings everything back uh, in regards to Lot and Sodom. And um, that's a cool, it's a cool thing. And we don't ever mention this one. But um, what happened, I don't know. It'd be cool. After his return from the defeat of Keldalamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wines. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, there's a lot of strange things here. Um, You have this guy named Melchizedek of Salem. And we don't know where he comes from. Don't know much about him. But he is a priest of God Most High. So he's a priest of Yahweh. But we also know that the priesthood has not been established yet. There is no Levite priesthood. So that's strange. Also, he is the king of Salem. What city is Salem? Jerusalem. So he's a king of Jerusalem, who is a priest of the God Most High, Yahweh, and he brings out bread and wine to Abraham. And bread and wine automatically makes us think of communion. So something's being told to us here. I don't necessarily understand it. People have been struggling with this for thousands of years. Who is Melchizedek? Strange guy. So a mystery Of thousands of years, people have been discussing this for at least 2,500 years. There's lots of speculations over these years about who this guy is. Uh, There are people that just say he's a Canaanite priest king, who just happens to be the king of Jerusalem at that time. Others say that he is some kind of pre-incarnate Christ, or what they call a Christophany. Um, Another name for, uh, there's another Jewish tradition where it's just another name for Noah's son Shem. 
because Shem is still alive. So they say that Shem is that person. Others believe that he is just some kind of spiritual redeemer, some kind of spirit being. Um, others take the idea that he is a manifestation of the Logos itself. Um, others say he is an end times priest, and we'll get to why they think he might be an end times priest too, in addition to what he's doing. And then others have taken the, the idea that he's, he's the Holy Spirit. Don't really know. But there are two other places in the Bible that mention this guy. So we're going to hop to those places because it at least helps us create a picture of who he might be. Uh, The first one is Psalms 110. Psalms 110 is an interesting psalm because it is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's the one that they quote the most throughout the the New Testament. Um, Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Other translations take that as to the day of you lead your forces. So it kind of means the same thing, the day of your power, the day you lead your forces. It's an army, it's a military idea uh, in holy garments. Other translations, the earliest ones say on holy mountains. So if we reread that, you get a little more war imagery of the past, your people will offer themselves freely on the day you lead your forces on the holy mountains. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs if you look into translations, a lot of the later copies have chiefs, but the original translation was the head over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way before he will lift up his head. Um, This is a prophetic psalm, but it's like a weird prophetic psalm that has to do with the end times. It was a strange oddity at the time. um, And I think that's why it gets repeated a lot in the New Testament is they're, they're trying to figure out the meaning of this psalm. But you get, the, you get all this imagery that you've had before, the idea. Well, who's this psalm about? Anybody want to take a guess who the psalm is about? Jesus. Yeah, it's Jesus coming back. It's, it, it covers everything. It covers when he's seated at the right hand of his father, and it covers when he comes back. Um, and it's, it's the militaristic Jesus. It's not the... the somewhat strange self-help Jesus we get in America sometimes. This is Jesus, warrior king, coming back to establish peace on earth. Uh, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's that strange guy thrown in again. Um, And then the other thing that's fun is we talked about before, about the curse of the, the serpent being. And it says that, you know, from Eve will come one that will smash your head, that will trample you. And here's another reference to that. The translation, he will shatter chiefs in the earliest text, well, he will, he will shatter the head. So this is specifically talking about Jesus Christ coming back and shattering the head of Satan. So, um, again, it, when you say shatter chiefs, you're thinking all the leaders of the world and violence against the leaders of the world. But actually, I mean, that may happen. But what they're focusing on is actually the spiritual violence to take back everything from Satan. Um, and he will drink by the brook, drink from the brook, brook by the way, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so that's your first post-Abraham Melchizedek. You get this still idea of this 
this priest of the order of Melchizedek, which is different than the priest of the order of Levi. So there's, there's something, we know there's something going on again with it. The next time we see Melchizedek is, we'll get a, we get a, quite a taste of it in Hebrews. And uh, we'll just start with Hebrews 7 here. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, the king of righteousness, and then he is also the king of Salem and the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So here's some clues. No father, no mother, no genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So he's some kind of fairly eternal being. Um, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so that's where I don't think it's necessarily a Christophany, just because Hebrews is... He resembles the Son of God, unless there's some kind of wackiness that I don't understand, which is possible. I will say, when I was researching this, I also went down this rabbit trail because I've never been able to understand Melchizedek. And there's a cool uh, theologian online that I like. He's this Lutheran dude. I think his name is Chad Bird. He wrote his master's thesis just on Melchizedek. It's like 171 pages. And so last night I went home and I found this thing, and I was really sore because I'm old, and I was doing the gardening. And so I did my nice hot bath with some Dr. Teal's pomegranate and black currant bath salts, which are my favorite right now. Got that whipped up, and I sat down, and I started reading this thesis. And it was a lot, and I didn't finish it, but I got most of the way through. And um, even after reading all of that stuff, which was years of this guy's work, I think the consensus is, we just don't know. And we're just not going to know until we get to heaven. I think we just don't know. But there's something here because whoever the writer of Hebrews is, whoever you believe wrote it, is definitely bringing him up. And a deep dive on Hebrews with that too because it talks about this passage in Hebrews. There's enough stuff in Hebrews that it actually, there's a lot of people that are beginning to think as we've uncovered with the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the belief of the Essenes, which was this group of Jews that lived over in these caves and area, um, it kind of appears that Hebrews was actually written, maybe written to the Essenes to convert the Essenes, which was interesting. I didn't know that. That's a fresh thing that they're working through right now. Um, but yeah, he's without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, um, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So he's showing that this priesthood is above the Levite priesthood. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom is, is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And then Hebrews goes on a little bit more with drawing comparisons 
about Jesus being a priest king in the order of Melchizedek. And he is. Jesus is going to rule from Jerusalem just like Melchizedek did. So there's, there's definitely typology and foreshadowing going on with this individual who just shows up in, in Genesis. My hot take, this is speculation. I'm going, he's a spiritual being of some kind. I'll just leave it there. I don't really know. I think everything points to definitely he's not, he doesn't seem human. Some kind of spiritual being, we'll never know. I'd like to meet him eventually. I'm sure I will. So I can ask him what's going on. Genesis 14, going back. So Abraham has just received this blessing with the bread and the wine from the priest king of Jerusalem. Uh, Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. That's an interesting thing for the king to want. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. So, a couple things about Abraham's decision here. He is going to give the glory ultimately to Yahweh. He's not going to at all entertain this idea that he gets to keep it himself by something he's done. So right there, we know that Yahweh did something in this battle to do this. Um, And he only takes back just the stuff to restore Lot and his family, just the stuff that was taken for them. The other thing you see here with Abram is, is he is already distancing himself from the king of Sodom. And this will play in in a couple of weeks when we, when we get to Sodom and Gomorrah. He is, uh, he, he's, we've already heard the comments about the wickedness of Sodom before this. And he is right now, he does not want to be associated with that city. That king, I don't want anybody to say that any of these riches came from that king. Uh, number one, everything is going to come from Yahweh. But number two, I don't want that association with that. So there's that rejection. I'm just going to stay here in my Oaks of Mamre and live the good life. And today, that's where we're going to end with Abraham's story because we're going to get in next week. Uh, being that it's Father's Day, it worked out good. We'll do Abraham, and Abraham has his first son. And then we get to see the trickiness and the scoundrelness of Abraham again. So this was a good week for Abram. He made all the right decisions, and he did everything faithfully. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of where we're at with Abraham today. So there's, there's some interesting stuff on Melchizedek. Um, I didn't know half the theories that I read, but yeah, it's been something. I mean, rabbis argue about who Melchizedek is. They've been doing it for thousands of years also. And so we just don't know. Um, But Abram knew when he met the guy, he knew this is what I do. So I don't know. Abram gets to meet some interesting spiritual beings on his way through his journey here to solidify God's rescue plan. So I'm going to go ahead and pray if Jonathan wants to come up. Um, Lord, we thank you that you are a God that does miracles. We thank you that you are a God who looks out for us. And Lord, that when we team up with you, when we, when we work with you to do what we need to do, you see us through even when odds are crazy, even when things don't seem right. We know that we can step into doing what we need to do for you, knowing that it's the right thing to do. And Jesus, I just thank you that you are a priest, king, in the order of Melchizedek. 
and that your sacrifice was of a higher order than the sacrifices in the temple, that your sacrifice reverberates through eternity. And Lord, we're especially grateful for that. That we love you, our priest king, for all that you have done, and that you first loved us even before we even knew that we needed you. And that your intention was always to bring us back into the family. And so we thank you, our priest king, again, for what you've done. We love you, Jesus. I just ask that you would be with us throughout the week. That you would just give us peace and give us your righteousness throughout this week. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.